are listening to the Crude Audacity Podcast, the podcast that talks shop, shit, and strategy for oil, energy, and politics. Here's your host, Catherine Mills. Thanks so much for tuning in. You are listening to the Crude Audacity Podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy for oil, energy, and politics. Today's show is going to be loaded because returning for their second time on the Crude Audacity are Matt Marshall and Rob Via of Aegis Hedging Solutions. Welcome back, guys. How are you doing today? Doing well, Very Catherine. well, thank you. How are you? <laughs> Doing well. I'm so excited to be sitting down with you guys again. Y'all are my go-to for what is happening across the market. And when we last spoke, as you know, it was BC before COVID. Now we're in COVID recovery or some claim to be. And when we were last speaking, it was really about the black swan events that were hitting the oil and gas industry. But today we get to talk about the full spectrum. So before we jump into that, can y'all give a little background for some of our new listeners on who you are and who Aegis is and what y'all actually do for the markets or commodity markets? Yeah, absolutely. So um, thanks for having us back first off. Um, yeah, so Aegis, we're a full service financial hedge advisor. Um, you know, we focus on a variety of commodities, um, oil, gas, NGLs, um, refined products, interest rates, metals, um, uh, FX as well. So um, what we do kind of where we fit in is so we work with over 300 um, on the oil and gas side, 300 EMP entities that produce north of 7 million BOE a day or, you know, roughly what's that, Matt, about 25% of uh, 25. lower 48 production. And what we do for our clients is uh, provide them with objective and actionable kind of insights and views on the market. In light of that, help them uh, with their head strategies and tailoring that to their, their profile. Uh, we do all the execution work with their counterparties and uh, do all the back office work around hedge portfolios for our clients and kind of wrap all of that up with some uh, cutting edge technology that we're really excited about that we've been invested heavily in over the last few years. That's awesome. Yeah, I love hearing that because, you know, I tell everyone that if you really want to know what's happening in the world, you follow the energy markets, you see how trade is happening across countries. And so many times people forget about the geopolitical implications of the industries we deal with. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, across energy metals, you have, uh, there's that, uh, the trade frictions the governments bring in all the time. And that's something we have to watch really closely, but you're so right about energy. I mean, it's uh, even like these days, it's like up and down. You can almost uh, track movements of oil with how we're coming out of COVID. It's- uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, on that note, so yesterday we saw fluctuations, and I know I gave you the quick heads up mm -hmm. that this would be my leading question, um, but full disclosure for those listening, I was sitting in about two back-to-back -back meetings, and I started getting texts from friends across the oil markets, um, even some up in Canada saying, oh no, it's happening again, and come to find out, we are seeing uh, a fairly significant drop in just what we know WTI to be Brent crude. We saw the drop across everything from the uh, mid sixties down to, it looks like the high fifties at this point. And I haven't been able to link it back to anything specific. I'm thinking it's OPEC related or some sort of infringement upon the current agreement for production cuts. So I kind of wanted to get y'all's uh, take on what might be causing this jump or this current jump. 
Ma yeah, Matt yeah. hasn't talked about OPEC at all here recently, so uh, you know we'll see we'll see what he can pull out of his hat. I thought I pull up a help. I pull up a WTI price chart, and we could kind of talk from there. And because uh, this chart, you can see a lot of history. Negative. <laughs> look at that drop. We That's cut so it off. Crazy. Yeah, we cut it off at ten dollars. Yeah, we just didn't want to look at it. Yeah, you but you can see a lot of history. I and mean, there's that day. Was it? What was it? Uh, it was the day before the May contract expired, and that was the negative day. And uh, you know, out of that, the the market was trying to rebalance itself by telling producers to cut off and trying to oh, yeah. encourage demand and trying to keep oil out of storage. And in that period of time right here, uh, you can see different parts of the forward curve where that's the prompt month. So that rolls forward every month. And then you have different uh, other strips that are the rest of 21, Cal 22, mm -hmm. that's the calendar year 22 and 23. And your near-term prices during this period were a lot cheaper than the later term prices. And we call that contango, that upward slope. And uh, it's, a, it's a signal that there is so much supply in the spot market or the near-term market that prices get sold down. Well, contrast that with what's happened since the 1st of January. <laughs> and that's where the, the shape of that forward curve is completely the opposite. It's backwardated. It's, uh, it's where the near-term prices are expensive and the longer-term prices are cheaper. And when you see that, it's a telltale sign that in that spot market, or really that prompt, prompt market, which is the next month, the, the bid is so strong and people are trying to bid up price so high so that they will pull oil out of storage to be able to serve what is growing demand. Um, okay. And so that's a good, that's a, that's a healthy market. Now, producers don't like it because what that means is if you're trying to hedge right now, you know, the near-term price is, you know, what headline do we always see right now? You see like 59, if you like at CNBC or something like that. But if you're trying to think about planning for 2022 or 2023, you're staring at like 56 and 54. Right. And that's, that's a struggle. So here's what I would say about like recent price action. I mean, you can see the front of the market came off, but look at this. This is really interesting. So Cal 23 in the blue really hasn't changed much. It had changed mm -hmm. much since mid-February. Yeah, so you've got this back of the curve that's anchored that is probably more of, uh, yeah, let's call it a more stable, longer-term outlook. I don't believe forward curves are good forecasts, but this is if you do believe that it's a good forecast, it's basically telling you that, hey, mid-50s long-term is where the market's comfortable right now. And there's a lot of money to still be made in the mid-50s. There's a lot of investment opportunity. There's a lot of investment opportunity in terms of new money instead of the traditional routes. But one thing I have been hearing, and Rob, I mean, you kind of are tuned into the, uh, the airwaves that are the oil and gas uh, social sphere, is that our oil prices are, even our gas prices, well, I mean, I looked at gas earlier today, so I would argue this one, but they are artificially enhanced. We still have a glut. We are not consuming as fast as we were BC before COVID. Although demand is rising, it's not rising in the predicted V-shaped curve that we all know, love, and hoped for. So when you hear we are artificially inflated still, what are your thoughts about that? Have you been hearing that out on the, the streets, so to speak? <laughs> I mean, uh, so I've got a, a, a few thoughts on that, but uh, Matt, what are your what are your thoughts on the artificially inflated piece? And and then I've got a few things to share on kind of uh, the price price area where we're in and and how different perspectives have kind of looked on that. But sure, yeah. When I hear if I heard somebody say artificially inflated oil price, uh, I would the, the first place I would go to that is like what what has been supporting oil price, and oh. uh, it, you know. <laughs> and and you can make you can make that argument that um, you know OPEC holding back 
let's call it seven million barrels a day of, of production, maybe it's eight. Um, that could be considered, you know, artificial because you know the market it isn't supply and demand that's setting that. It's I mean, maybe more like a, you know massaging price a little bit, trying to see you got a cartel trying to keep things in order. But uh, you know there are some good things going on that are in you know despite whatever OPEC is doing, there are good signs underneath all the data, and one of those is inventories. And uh, you know, inventories are a good gauge of just how much supply is out there. I mean, what are your sources of supply right now? If you need oil, you could either uh, you get it straight from you know the well down through the pipeline. You know, you get it through that way. So that's kind of like everyday ongoing stream. Or if you need it, you pull it out of storage. And like I was talking about that forward curve that was backwardated, it was downward sloping. Mm -hmm. That was a sign that oil is trying to come out of storage. And if you look at some history here, we've got two different things. You got EIA's data uh, here on the left over here and then we've got some uh, OPEC estimates over here and you can see inventory starting to come down sorry late summer through the end of the year per EIA and we're looking at the same stuff this is OECD countries so it's you know mostly the western developed economies doesn't include China uh, so that's one of the uh, downsides of using this data but you can see those inventories coming off pretty quickly not as quickly as they went up but <laughs> coming off pretty quickly and then you can see per o OPEC's forecasts uh, they've got these inventories still coming down through uh, through July and even with the production increases that they announced earlier, uh, you know, at the end, what was it, two weeks ago now or a week ago now, even with those increases, they still expect inventories to drop. So, I mean, there's good things going on in this market. It's cleaning itself up, demand's coming back, and I've got other stuff to show you on that. Uh, but yeah, we have to be very concerned about the choices that OPEC makes mm -hmm. through the end of this year. Um, and then 2022 is a different story, but we could talk about that. So yeah, some good things going on underneath the underneath the surface. Well, but, that's good to hear. Know, we definitely are going to have to talk about the impending 2022 because, like you said, that is yeah. kind of there's a different narrative. But Rob, what were you going to say about when you hear coming from clients or those looking to get an industry that we are artificially and in, uh, increasing price for whatever reason? <laughs> Hey guys, what do you think about Matt and Rob so far? They're pretty great, right? They are most definitely my go-to guys for what is happening across the market, and they're always so willing to share their insights, which is why I want to tell you a little bit more about Aegis Hedging Solutions. Now, Aegis enables companies to manage their commodity price and interest rate risk through proprietary capabilities. Aegis provides unique insights into commodity and rate markets. They develop and execute cash flow protection strategies, something we all need, and they manage all hedging activities through a SaaS technology platform. And if that wasn't enough, for the fourth year in a row, Aegis has been named the leading hedge advisor. That's huge. While they may be headquartered out of the Woodlands, Texas, they have offices all over. And you know Denver is my favorite office. But to learn more, be sure to look down in the show notes where I have Matt and Rob's LinkedIn profiles linked, as well as visit www.aegis-hedging.com. Dot com. That's A-E-G-I-S-Hedging.com. I know their team will be able to help you out in more ways than one. Check them out today. And in the meantime, let's get back to the interview. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that there's some of the narrative a lot of a lot of folks here coming out of kind of the public space is, is living within cash flow and, and um, you know, keeping things kind of tight and, and uh, really not putting much capex back into the ground, um, but where I think that, and again, this is kind of 
one of the things where I think the, the size of our client base gives us a unique perspective. You know, some of the things that we're seeing is that, and, and just what I'm hearing from folks that are, whether that's, um, you know, looking for kind of PDP buys and, and liking the price environment that we're in now, or, you know, more specifically, some of those private companies that are looking at this price environment and saying, you know, hey, we can generate returns. This is, you know, we can make money at these price levels. Yep. I think that that is somewhat under the radar and not what a lot of people are kind of thinking that, um, you know, there could be, there's there's some big private players out there that, uh, you know, think that this is an attractive price environment and, um, you know, maybe looking at, at uh, putting some some dollars back in the ground, picking up some rigs and, and uh, bringing some supply back on. That's, well, that's I do so like true. That. <laughs> it's kind of funny though, because you heard when we were mid COVID, because remember BC mid COVID, now we're AC, AD, I don't know what it is anymore. But New York, there were claims that Wall Street was no longer investing in oil. I actually know a number of companies who divested their uh, retirement funds for employees to get away from energy. So it's kind of interesting that you're saying that the average Joe is recognizing opportunity in this price environment, whereas some of the big players might still be hesitant. Well, and I think some of that may differ also just from, from Wall Street versus private investment, right? I mean, there's still private capital out there that, um, and depending on where they are, they may be a little quieter about uh, their energy investments, uh, just given kind of the state of every, I see you shake your head there, Catherine, I, I agree with that, but, um, you know, that may be a little more quiet about that, but are still seeing opportunity out there, right? And and I think that that's just some of that uh, has been a little bit of a shift in um, some of the traditional sources of private capital, but um, no, I mean, there's people are identifying opportunities and, and like I say, with some of those that are established and have a, a footprint and, and are looking at their inventory and saying at this price is we can make money, but also some of the private capital that's coming in, that's kind of more fun based models and things like that, where, um, you know, they see really it's been more PDP by opportunities and, and seeing an opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, buy and, and kind of lock in at these, uh, these, I, I was about to say higher prices. Uh, some people may have different thoughts on uh, where prices stand, but what, from what we've seen, we feel is you know relatively attractive price price point where you can um, you know lock things in, and and that's where again Aegis comes in and um, where we can help some of these guys out where they're looking to do some long term hedges and and kind of lock in their returns um, off of buying kind of a discounted PDP buy. So they're increased prices to me, given my tenure. In <laughs> right. Yeah. There's there's some people though that that are still longing for those hundred dollar day. I mean, who's not, right? But but that's just all that they can go back to, and so that they look at you know sixty dollars or so, and they're still kind of saying, eh, that's not not moving the needle for me. Well, yeah, but that's question. that's also the. Go ahead. Yeah, I was, yeah. was going to say that that's also the natural progression of a, a maturing industry. Mm -hmm. You know, the uh, the locations for the best oil are essentially known, and uh, efficiencies get better and better. And at some point, they start to plateau. And uh, at some point, there is just the you know the proliferation of the technology among many many participants, and prices come back down to marginal cost. And, and I think, as, and that's just any industry; it's just the natural cycle, uh, unless there's a you know a reintroduction of a new technology. So, what the reason that that's important to note is that as an operator right now, if you're seeking out opportunities, is that if prices start to rise above what you perceive to be above your threshold, your price threshold, your break even for you know, for spending new capex, then guess what? Your neighbors are probably seeing the same thing. 
And if that's the case, then seizing the opportunity and locking in those prices is becoming more and more important because it's possible that the margins are getting are getting thinner and uh, and and, and, and uh, you know, not as easy to to uh, to uh, uh, achieve. So I think that's where you know hedging comes in is it's becoming more and more important. Well, if anything has been taught or learned, or if anybody walks away with anything over the last two years, it's that fluctuations are the only constant in the energy industry. So there you go, hedging, protect your assets, protect your company, protect your future. That being the case though, this one's for Matt. Okay, who really is big chief on campus when it comes to the oil and gas industry? Because I mean, we we talk about them as oil and gas. They're two different markets, all right? They fluctuate, you know, I would say uh, as inverses of each other, because that's what I've always been taught. But the, the talk tracks, the even throughout COVID, it's, it's not really changing. How do we improve this? How do we make this better? Where, where are our flaws? Where are our breakdowns? What's the view from the bus bench? The, the talk tracks really haven't changed. So understanding the impacts that we have from the geopolitical spectrum in terms of what happens in Russia affects West Texas. What happens up in Canada and the loss, loss of a pipeline affects what's happening out of Houston. I mean, it, it's just all so intertwined. So seeing how OPEC, OPEC plus China, all of, all of the players are now more aggressively interacting, I would say, or at least you're seeing it more on social. Who is big chief on campus? Who do we really need to be paying attention to? Is Saudi still yeah. No, it's a, it's a very, very easy answer. Uh, the person running the show is the consumer. It is the petroleum consumer. I like and that. Uh, that, that was the story in 2020. We lost demand and therefore supply had nowhere to put the oil. Uh, gas was in a little different situation. Gas was in a much better situation, and we can talk about that if you like. Um, but you know, as demand came back, that allowed uh, supply to come back. It allowed us to uh, to take down the inventory, these record high inventories where we are approaching the tops at just about every location you could find in, in the U.S. and, and globally. Where we put it on, you know, putting it on, on tankers because we didn't have anywhere else to put it, and those were full too, you know. And that's so like that. And the recovery has been exactly that. It has been how fast can demand come back and you can trace it back like the, the future the futures market very uh you know trade sometimes in expectation and uh, you could see it whenever the vaccines were announced that they were actually ahead of schedule and would be here months before anybody thought they would you started to see prices escalate and what have we seen in the last few days when you see prices retreat on what news well, some of it was perhaps, you know, Iran, China, things that you mentioned there, but the, also it was, you know, uh, escalation of outbreaks of COVID in India and uh, the threat that demand may not come back as fast as, uh, as what was expected. So it's the consumer. Everything else is uh, just trying to fit in after that. Okay. So you don't think that when we see China and Iran start breaking sanctions and start playing each other or playing with each other on the sidelines, that doesn't have as big an impact as our daily consumption for Amazon Prime. 
Uh, well, it would. Uh, it the it will have an effect, and it's just a matter of during what time periods it's going to have most of its effect. So, for example, uh, you know, right now inventory. Like, I I don't know what Iran and China have been doing behind the scenes, but what I can say is that based on the inventory data that we have, it looks like inventories are coming down uh, despite anything going on. And what that tells you is that at least in those OECD economies, like we were just looking at, the the supply demand balance is undersupplied. I mean, if if you're if you're pulling down, uh, you know, 90 million barrels per month, that's three million barrels per day that the market wants and doesn't have. Uh, so I'm not sure what's going on behind the scenes. And then the, the second thing is that as demand recovers, eventually OPEC 7 million or so a million barrels a day that it has on the sidelines will be brought back into the market. Uh, if demand grows fast, then OPEC's going to run out of supply. And then the incremental, the incremental growth in demand is going to have to be solved by somebody else, namely U.S. Uh, but then what happens if Iran actually does find a way to consistently cheat or to, or to sanctions? Well, then it just it takes a longer time before that OPEC plus Iran you know, basket of supply can satisfy global demand and kind of it might push you know, price risk further down into 2022. Yeah, that's interesting. It's... Uh... You know, where there's a will, there's a way we've always found, but what has really been kind of playing on my mind and something I've been working to understand better are what we're seeing across natural gas, because there's obviously the environmentalist dream, uh, green dream, as I like to call it, attack on oil, especially here in the 48. Um, how is natural gas going to survive this? Because we, what did we break $3 earlier in March? And now we're back down to the epic 250 that we've just had for prolonged periods of decades. Epic 50. <laughs> yeah, it's what's sad is that 250 or so is kind of what you know, the summer of next summer 2022 is priced too. So you've got kind of a whole curve that's suppressed right now. You know, nat natural gas um, is, is very much influenced by oil. Uh, in the in the in the sense that the the two largest sources of natural gas production uh, over the last three to four years have been the Permian Basin, its associated gas, the gas that comes from the oil wells, and then uh, the the uh, Appalachia Basin, so the Marcellus Utica plays up there in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, and, and that's more a, a drier gas or an NGLs rich gas. And so those have been the the primary sources of all of your new supply. Well, the Permian Basin supply is still uh, kind of uh, you know, suppressed. Mm -hmm. And then we have, and then and let's get back to talking about your environmental effects. Appalachia is unable to grow very much anymore because it doesn't have enough pipeline capacity to leave the region and to take the gas to, uh, to other demand regions that may need it. And so uh, there's a there's a pipeline up, up there that's been in development for years and it's been now uh, delayed several times and it awaits a few uh, permitting uh, permitting rulings. Uh, it's Mountain Valley Pipeline and it starts right there in that liquid rich part of the Appalachia Basin, the Marcellus Utica area, um, and it's it's tied up right now. And uh, right now it looks like it's you know at the at the earliest you know the, the end of this year maybe into the middle of next year before it could get its permits and be able to put into service. So there you have, you know, environmental effects on oil that uh, may have trickled into like how people view oil investments. And on the gas side, you have, uh, you know, fights against pipelines to be able to bring more supply to market. And so what that means is that the Gulf Coast, where most of your, your demand growth is, 
uh, it has the potential to be starved of natural gas here in the next, uh, you know, call it a year or two. So that's where I need to put my money. In those in those Gulf Coast players, we're seeing a <laughs> yeah. lot of that. We're seeing a lot. Of yeah, that. yeah. That's like. Well, I mean, interestingly enough, on natural gas, <laughs> just not not investment. This is not investment. Interestingly, <laughs> yeah, you gotta gotta put that disclaimer in there. So, um, yeah, and interestingly enough, though, I think that on the natural gas side, you're seeing some some kind of bringing it back to some of the capital that's that's entering the space, and you know, that's more specific to natural gas. Um, I think you're seeing some investment theory on a really a longer term play on natural gas, and you're seeing that through the likes of some some private uh, you know companies that are really going out after consolidating a lot of natural gas assets in the U.S. I mean, you've seen that um, in the Barnett, you've seen that in the San Juan. There have been some pretty big deals that have come out here recently. You know, I've I've heard a few groups that are trying to do some some things of that nature um, out in the Marcellus, and so you know it's. It's interesting, just the, I think the investment theory behind that, again, it kind of comes back to buying cheap PDP. And, you know, you talk about the back to the 250 realm and, and kind of, you know, where we've lived for a while. But I think that that's one of those opportunities that, that um, you know, folks are kind of seeing that as um, natural gas being a little bit bigger of a player in the future. And now's a good time to kind of consolidate assets and buy low. Yeah, and Catherine, here's how that goes down. Like stuff that we get to see behind the scenes that most people don't is that you can read the public guidance and they'll tell you, oh, I'm going to grow by this this percentage, you know, next year. I'm going to have this many rigs, this many well completions. What we get to see is the private guys. So it might be private equity, it might be a you know a family office, or it might just be just you know plain plain vanilla private company. Yeah. And we see is they step in and they say, hey, uh, I have an opportunity to take interest on uh, on four new completions this year. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to do it. And then they come to us and they try to, and they want to hedge the, basically the entire NPV of that project out through two, three, four years uh, by hedging in those gas, those gas prices and NGLs prices sometimes. And so what we have seen is an uptick, not only in the, the acquisition activity, acquisition and investor acti activity, like Rob said, but also just PUDs. Yeah. It's just additional action there. Yeah, and part of that is not just because of natural gas prices, it's because of NGL's prices being pretty good right now and having a pretty good outlook. So, so I was um, gonna ask you about NGL's because as a reservoir engineer, it's always on the back of your mind. You're told to track it. You're told to do a little bit of forecasting on it. It's not really the yeah. norm, but they, they fluctuate in and out of power, so to speak. So what is happening yeah, right. in the NGL market that's sort of a result or a prelude to what's going to happen oil and gas wise? Yeah. Hey, guess what? If this goes back to uh, the oil market, it's uh, it goes back to, we started out with oil demand and then we talked about oil production and then associated gas production. Well, I'll see gas, guess where most of your NGL production growth has been coming the last several years. Permian Basin, Appalachian Basin, and really Permian Basin is the big one. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're producing, uh, you know, same well, producing the oil and the gas, but also ethane, propane, butane, normal butane, isobutane, natural gasoline, some other, you know, cats and dogs of, you know, minor NGLs. And a partridge in a uh, pear tree. They're, oh, they're doing all that. I can't name them and, that uh, so, Good Lord. <laughs> hey, don't give me, I, I'll go in Olefins. Well, you better yeah, stop right. me because I'll keep going down he the will. chain. So what so, I'm hearing uh, but, is but I need to get on board with re-becoming an Appalachian American. <laughs> I'm glad you're politically correct because some people will just yeah use other language and uh, and, and we don't appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. So um, 
<laughs> so yeah, the uh, so it, production of NGLs has been really suppressed. But the big thing that's happened is that despite supply being down, we've seen a rebound in international demand for LPG specifically, like propane and butane. And so a lot of the export projects that had been on the books in the US for several years now, finally got done during 2020, especially toward the end of 2020. And suddenly your export volumes out of the US jumped. And frankly, our supply demand balance can't handle it. Okay. It's too much demand. And so something needs to happen. And uh, there's some people out there who think that propane and butane prices are gonna just take another step up because what they need to do is get so expensive that you can't make money exporting them. That is a point of view out there. I've read several times. Uh, our point of view, and this is not, you know, trading advice. This is, uh, you know, this you have to understand that, like, we're not uh, saying that the future is going to uh, perform like the past. But in the past, what has happened is, uh, as prices go up, there's a price level, like a price a difference between the Mont Bellevue, which is Gulf Coast prices for propane and butane, and the Asian prices for propane and butane. And when they get too close together, you start shutting off exports. And we're still about 10 cents away from that on propane, which would mean that propane and butane have a little bit room to run if that's the, if that's the way it works out. So yeah, good outlook for those guys, for those so commodities. So breaking that down, because you know, I, I, I claim to know everything you're talking about, but sometimes I don't for the layman. <laughs> what, how does that affect the everyday American, you know, not the savvy investor, the savvy market analytic? Yeah, like, I hear you. What, what does that mean for the average, the average Joe out there who's consuming one way or the other, but might not realize what they're consuming? Yeah, so the average consumer of, most people don't consume a lot of butane unless, you know, you're you know, um, but, uh, the, you know, a propane, you're probably a lot more bigger consumers out there. The bad news is that propane, the, the Mont Bellevue prices, like in the well, in the salt cavern in Mont Bellevue, Texas, that price can do a lot of things. You're still getting a much, much, much higher price when you go and you buy a new container at the grocery store or Costco or whatever. The price is outrageous. It, the retail price is just super high. So you probably won't see a big fluctuation in, say, a 10 or 20 cent uh, rise in propane prices in Mont Bellevue. Yeah. Okay. So um, we're so we're good to keep grilling this summer, is what you're saying. I was about to. Oh, say you should that. always. Like, so COVID's not going to shut down the Fourth of July. It's going to be propane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not quite there yet, but uh, I would say if I if I had if I were using propane to heat my home or business or to cook with going into next winter, I, I would make sure that my supply my tanks are full going into October rather than waiting too late. Yeah. So. You had mentioned some of this is not going, it's not going to be the same story for the upcoming 2022. And, you know, I know we're in April here, but in the blink of an eye, we're going to be done with 2021 as, as slow mm -hmm. as 2020 was, as it, it went fast. So what are you predicting is going to be the, the shift for us in these uh, next few quarters? Sure. Uh, I think I think there's a few things to watch. And uh, the and one thing that we do is uh, we've kind of put this on paper. Uh, and uh, you're speaking about natural gas, or you're just thinking about all, all commodities just in general. I'm really I mean, I always keep my eye on the oil market and natural gas is my second, which it sounds like I should be paying more attention to natural gas, but just the narrative itself. I mean, everyone's kind sure. of surviving. I like to reference my age of consolidation, but that's not what we're seeing right now going into 2022. 
Okay. Yes. Yeah, so here, let's just talk about commodities first in uh, about oil. So it, there's, you know, there's been a lot of demand recovery already in road fuels and, um, and, you know, like, and other, other fuels that I mentioned, like, uh, like LPG. One of these, one of the uh, categories of fuels that has been slow, and you can understand why, is aviation fuel, jet fuel. Uh, because if you're not getting on an airplane, then the airplane doesn't have anywhere to go, doesn't have a need to go anywhere. To go to Paris right now. I'm just saying, super cheap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, but you can see that the TSA, you know, compared to, uh, you know, about two months ago, the TSA is checking in about twice as many people per day. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's rising fast, but still, you know, long haul, long haul flights. Uh, country to country flights, intercontinental flights, you know, they're, they're of course not back to where they were. And that's a, that's a major source of demand growth. And I think that's going to be, you know, happen, happen in earnest toward the you know, second half of this year and into 2022. Um, the other thing that I'd watch out for is that the longer that the U.S. isn't investing in new oil wells, the more chance we have of having this whipsaw effect in 2022, where demand rises, OPEC can't serve the barrels. You need barrels from somebody, mm -hmm. but there hasn't been ongoing investment in it to be able to provide it. And that's when the market could be acutely undersupplied and you could start to see prices start to escalate. So, um, Matt, those this, are the this Matt, this question came up here today and I'm just kind of curious to, to hear, you know, so you get into a, a situation where there's an undersupply like that, you know, how quickly do ducks play into to that uh, conversation? Yeah, and I'd have to go check the current state of ducks. Uh, but you know, ducks so far in ducks for people who don't like are outside of oil and gas. A duck is not a quack quack quack. So it's a it's very bad English translated into a three letter acronym. It's uh, drilled but uncompleted wells. In other words, it's a hole in the ground, but they haven't fracked it yet, and so it can't produce oil and gas. Uh, and, and what happens is you get an inventory of these wells if you drill a bunch of wells, but you don't complete them. And we had a lot of that happen uh, as the Permian Basin was growing. Mm -hmm. uh, it also happened in other places like in Appalachia and but to a larger extent in the Haynesville. So like East Texas and Northern Louisiana. And so the idea there is that you can actually bring those to uh, bring those to completion a lot faster than you would from starting a well from scratch. Mm -hmm. um, and what's happened this year is uh, those ducks have been used to support production, but not to support growth. You know, uh, because you've already sunk some cost into the well, and so it, it, the incremental cost is small. As we get into uh, 2022, I think what happens is um, that if if the if the if the situation unfolds like I described, where you know, there's this gap between demand growing and supply not keeping up with it, it's going to take more than ducks. Uh, it's going to take new wells, uh, you know, being drilled and completed. Um, but uh, to the, the extent at which, you know, it just depends on that discrepancy between the, the demand and the supply. Are ducks still playing a role in asset acquisition? Because um, back to your point, PDP, proved developed producing, is really where people were sinking their money now. Just because you had a PUD doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get paid for it. And one of the best ways to follow the money a few years ago was to follow the duck trend. So is it- It's a great question. It, uh, Oh, good. Yay. Okay. So go for it. <laughs> well, so here I'll, 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 can I answer a question with a question? How about that? Oh. Uh, my question would be if you are, uh, if, if you're looking at a, a, you know, an acquisition that has ducks, my question would be, why aren't they completed already? 
because I think it's very possible that uh, some of that duck inventory is actually not very good inventory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have no way to quantify that, uh, but I do know anecdotally that during our, when we counsel acquisitive firms who either have an asset that they're targeting or they're just thinking in generally, that duck conversation has not come up in my conversations yet at all. Yeah, same goes with acreage and, and you know, PUD value that, that's put on to so PUD improve undeveloped, um, so drilling locations on a position. Um, it comes with a you know acreage footprint. I mean, wasn't that long ago that uh, you were seeing you know a PDP value, PUD value, acreage value going into these acquisitions, and it's largely kind of come down to um, you know discounted PDP buys and and you know I mean it wasn't that long ago that we were talking some big figures in the Permian. You saw some entrants going in there that were paying you know for just the acreage, you know, just the the rock alone, right and uh, it's largely, I mean, it's just, it's been such a, such a quick shift um, from where we were a few years ago on how deals were getting, um, you know, value, valuation process. So uh, it's been interesting to see that. I mean, and, and to, to Matt's point, I mean, we largely, when we're talking through kind of hedge strategies around folks that are looking at acquisitions, most of the valuation is just primarily going into the PDP these days. So that all being said that there's, I know we've talked about this a little in the past, but the the paradigm shift of how do you make money in oil and gas? And we've got a number of companies that the way they make money or the way their their business plan was to make money was to to exit, to prove up real fast and to get out. And now it seems like the long-term development strategy is actually the plan. So what are what's some insider trading you can give us on the this uh, paradigm shift here? Yeah, I mean, uh, oh, go ahead, Matt. Well, I was going to say something I said earlier. So uh, you go. I'll, I'll hone it mentally while you uh, say what you're going to say. <laughs> no, I mean, I was just uh, my thought process. You know, on the the private side, you know, like the traditional private equity. I think that a lot of that is looking back into um, kind of becoming an operating company, right? So um, they are largely kind of getting. I mean, not to take anything away, they've always been technical and had good technical people, but I think just trying to set themselves up to be more of uh, a traditional operator and looking at um, holding on to assets for longer term. I mean, and some of that goes back to again the the acreage values on some of these deals. I mean, you saw some of these private equity backed management teams you know, a few years back that they were primarily going out and buying, they were looking more to aggregate the leasehold and aggregate acreage in hot areas, you know, kind of um, maybe drill a couple wells, prove a concept and look to flip that, getting paid on acreage, PDP, you know, PUD value, getting some value along kind of those three streams, so to speak. Um, And and so now I think that you're looking at um, different forms of capital coming into the private side um and uh yeah it's just it's it's interesting it's uh it's a little bit different from the mentality of um the makeup of some of these teams and and the also life cycle of the investment and how long they're going to be holding on to that yeah here's (laughs) yeah i got got distracted because i thought that that matt's doorbell was about to ring with the ups delivery there I've been waiting. It looks on like a he's going to the neighbor. So. Amazon, <laughs> Amazon Prime. Amazon yeah, Prime. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there it is. That's not COVID. a. That was not a plug or you know anything. It just uh, it so happened. Matt's Unless he gets me free stuff. Up. 
Yeah, it gets love, me free stuff. I'm just throwing this out here. I would love Bezos to sponsor this podcast. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and my, he may have a little bit of money to put in. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's your here's your answer. I think when you start thinking about like how does somebody who's not in energy finance think about like how are they making decisions? There's been this change, like yeah, you mentioned, you can't just flip acreage right now. That's that, that's not you know widespread. What's going on? I think the the game right now is creating cash machines. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and it's also a matter of like measuring how much cash you need to be able to generate to satisfy an investor. And I think those, those conversations are happening every day. Um, so for example, I mean, just like when you think about somebody who needs, has a cost of capital of 20%, okay, which sounds high, but what that means is that every year you need to create free cash flow. That means cash that's left over after you pay all your bills, including your interest, uh, that 20% of whatever equity was invested, right? Okay, so if you look at prices right now and you say, if I can get a $59 oil price, it gets me over that 20%. Mm -hmm. I think that people are quick on the trigger right now. And they say, I have capital, capital avail available for that, but I have to get really precise about it. And so the way that we address that is we look at it statistically. So of course, you know, the easiest way for a hedger to come in and say, okay, well, I've got a solution for you. I want you to hedge 100% of your production it's at $59 and like, look how smart I am, you know, but, but the truth is what people do is uh, in, in with our guidance is to look at it statistically and to say, look at current prices, try to figure out what the, you know, a good 20, 25th percentile or 75th percentile range of prices is likely to be, uh, and then put hedges on in place to make sure you can clear that 20% hurdle. And I think people are getting faster to making those decisions. They're getting more precise in it too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, we've seen some of those too, where there have been situations where they'll look to wrap an asset, which basically means that they're going to look to, um, you know, hedge a high percentage of the PDP out long term and just kind of you know, set up um, you know a certain return that they're going to hit and and so it's kind of about you know you could kind of think of it in a baseball analogy not that i'm a big baseball guy but scoring some runs through you know getting hitting some singles and and playing small ball as opposed to kind of the old you know when it was looking at aggregate acreage and then look and flip that at a huge multiple you know, swinging for the fences and trying to hit home runs and grand slams, right? So yep. it's just kind of a different mentality on how folks are scoring runs these days. I mean, hey, Catherine, you can see it in our trade volume too. You can see it in the trade oh, volume as well. Oh, you can see it. You totally see it in the trade volume. Like mm -hmm. we, we, you know, we have that you know, a lot of, a lot of, you know, what I, uh, Rob was talking about like 25% of U.S. productions among our clients, but you can see it right now as when oil prices have been going, when they start to go up when they haven't been going up for a while, immediately hedging. When prices start to trend lower, it dries up. And so we go from our busiest days of the year to our slowest days of the year, like with, within just a few days. Yeah, okay. Sorry to step over you on that. No, no, you're totally fine. I, I'm curious because what y'all are describing is operating within cash flow, which, you know, novel yeah. idea because I'm personally in my paycheck, I can't operate outside of my cash flow. But that changes the game primarily for private equity who really wanted the quick flip, the 35% minimum. That's the rule of thumb that they had out there. So does private equity die with this new long-term private investor type uh, landscape? I don't, I don't think so. No. I mean- Then how do they evolve? I, I, how do they evolve? I, the Again, kind of coming back to that, I think that they evolve by um, their, the life cycle of holding onto their assets is going to get longer. Kind of the, the it's 
being a little more patient, I guess, with letting a management team build out and develop an asset. And like I say, kind of really become an operating company and, and uh, you know, kind of going that way as opposed to just being flippers. I mean, I think that that's yeah. really how, I, I don't think that it's the, I've heard heard people talk about that, that this paradigm shift is going to be the death of private equity. And I, I don't agree with that. I just, I think that, you know, there's a lot of smart money out there and a lot of smart guys and the private equity shops that they, they know what's going on and, yep. and they know that there's alternative ways to, uh, you know, they can be dynamic and they can shift with the market. All right, y'all, I am going to take a minute and tell you about my company, Crude Media Inc., Crude Media is the creative agency dedicated to building marketing strategies based off of quantifiable data. Now, I know that many of us are looking for our next opportunity, looking to build our existing business unit, or heck, looking to build a personal brand within our industry. Did you know that a well-executed marketing strategy is one of the most crucial elements to successful growth? But here's the dirty little secret. You need a strategy based on data. And it's true. Partnering with the right strategist not only helps you build your footprint and generate new leads, but they can help you identify areas of opportunity within your existing plan so that you can continue to build lines of revenue and exceed your goals. If you are ready to turn your ideas into energy, connect with us at Crude Media Inc. Check us out on Facebook today. It's kind of a sexy headline, though. The death of private equity. The (laughs) They, they uh, like yeah. to blame private equity, or at least some of the old guys like to bra- blame private equity of turning the oil uh, oil field into a Ponzi scheme. And it's funny, I haven't met anyone who agrees that this is the death of private equity. Everyone says it is like y'all are saying a paradigm shift and they have their own take on that. But it's kind of amusing to me that that is the headline that's circulating and has been circulating for probably two years now, I would say. Yeah. Like you say, it's a headline. It's a it's a sexy headline, right? So it's uh, it's something that people kind of like to beat the drum about, but it's just, uh, I mean, it's not what we've seen. Uh, is it, is there going to be as much capital that's going to go out? No, because I think that there, you know, you've already seen some consolidation within that world. And again, it, it just comes back to consolidating assets under you know, good management teams that are uh, that have the operational efficiencies and, and um, capacity to do so. Um, but so I don't think you're going to see as much, you know, active investment and you, you haven't seen that, right. I mean, that's, that's long, I'm pretty much for our entire existence. That's been a, an area of new business for us that has been pretty constant is when people get commitments from the private equity world to go out and find an asset, you know, those guys are going to have a hedging need, whether that be, you know, largely private equity wants them to, to hedge, um, you know, some of their production as they make acquisitions. So we track that very closely. And I mean, you just see the commitments. It's not to say that it's completely dried up, but compared to the level of commitments that were coming out five years ago, three years ago, I mean, it looks a lot different now. So um, it's just, it's, and being patient be and kind of slowing right down the bat, quite frankly i mean you should be hedging right off the bat uh, and for the new money that's out there and i know i say new money but what i mean is the private investor who's looking to capitalize on the fluctuating landscape the average joe if you will don't invest in a team who doesn't know what the word hedging means 
I mean, we're, we're always proponents. We, th we think anybody, as soon as you, you got line of sight on an asset, you should be talking to us. And I kind of, I'm like laughing about that a little bit, but we do think that that's the truth. And, um, you know, it's something that we've seen. One thing that I've been excited about here recently, talking about, you know, that, yeah, we've seen a slowdown of, of some of the private equity commitments, but I will say, um, you know, again, I'll, that kind of go hand in hand with that or had historically gone hand in hand with that our asset level transactions. And I mean, kind of getting, maybe leading to the age of consolidation, you know, we saw a lot of that and we've seen of that, um, you know, and just the core M&A and, and some of that shaking out that just frankly had to happen. But what you weren't really seeing was um, the asset level transactions in the M&A markets. And, and um, you know, I, I, I came from that side prior to Aegis and have a lot of friends that are still in, in that side of the business. And keeping up with them, you know, the, those guys are, last year was slow. It was slow going for them. And, um, you know, that, that's not to say there weren't a lot of deals out on the market, um, but it was just bid ask spreads were wide and with volatility is just, it seemed like, you know, deals weren't getting done. And over the last three to four months, you know, since the beginning of the year and maybe dating back even to the end of last year, we've started seeing some new um, business coming in from, uh, deals, you know, and, and from acquisitions, asset level transactions, not these big corporate M&A deals. And I do think that that's exciting because getting back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, you know, there is dry powder out there. There still is capital that, that they're looking to go out and deploy. And uh, I just think that it's an exciting time that you're starting to see, you know, hopefully fingers crossed that, that it doesn't, uh, you know, tighten back up a, a loosening of the A&D markets at those asset level deals. So I got to ask just because Huh, I like my gaslighting here. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> um, we have seen recently the great Texas freeze. Now, I remember from back when I was a little girl, we had a number of these freezes and it wasn't anything new across the South. But I guess all of the new uh, 1990s and older or younger have, uh, this was their first big freeze and it affected the windmills. So what do y'all do in tracking the alternative spectrum and how that is fluctuating throughout the markets, you know, here and abroad? Yeah, we watch it really closely. I mean, and we when we said 2022 earlier. I could have just just as easily said, you know, the continued prolifer proliferation of, of uh, renewable energy. And uh, this year was actually a really big one for that. There was, um, I can't remember exact numbers, but I think it was around 15 gigawatts of new renewables capacity that went in at the end of 2020. And uh, to give you an idea of how much that is, that's, uh, that could be close to two BCF a day of natural gas demand displaced if it all went to natural gas. Now, it doesn't happen every day. On average, it's close, probably closer to one BCF a day. But uh, some of the weakness that you've seen in the gas market so far in, uh, in 2020, 2021 has definitely been the result of just the, uh, the slow bleeding of natural gas demand into the renewable sector. And uh, you can look at, uh, there's a few places if you want to look, you could probably go find it your, on your own if you wanted to. One is ERCOT. So that's the, that's the, the, the famous uh, um, operator are, in Texas that, that froze. a few times here recently. Yeah. And they, they do a good job of publishing data. Yeah. yeah, and so you can go and look at what the uh, the wind generation inside of ERCOT has been, and it's been a step change since December. 
Um, and then you could go, also go look, uh, uh, I'd be happy to provide the links after for anybody who's interested, but you can go look nationwide and you can see it's been up too. Um, and so that's gonna continue. And as far as what happened in February, you know, there were two different things that went on and I'm sure everybody's formed their opinion by now, but one was the turbines freezing. But the other is what's happened, the difference between now and in the 90s is that there is so much natural gas production right here in Texas that is not accustomed to having cold weather like that. Um, it just doesn't happen very often. And so we had this double whammy where, um, you know, the natural gas production came off at the same time that our power generation capacity came off. And it, it wasn't just those two, uh, those two sources of energy either. It's just widespread. Interesting. So it's, it's kind of funny. You see the argument between the traditional forms of energy and what we like to call alternative energy and the narrative is so split based off of your political stance not what actually is happening across the market so i like to just call it all energy because we're so intertwined and we have been for decades but you're seeing an uptick in the adoption but to your point it's not a constant so is there a point where alternatives take over 30% of the grid because it seems like that's their magic number or has been for a while. It's been, it's been growing steadily and uh, you know, you can look in the past and that's probably outside the scope of my knowledge, but you know, you've got federal subsidy helping with the, uh, you know, introduction, especially wind uh, in Texas and elsewhere. Um, Yeah. You know, the EIA had put out some analysis, you know, going back to last year, even when gas prices were cheaper, saying that natural gas demand in the power sector had peaked up, like it was going to be all downhill from here. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a really interesting thought because, um, you know, you, you, you wouldn't expect that population growth is going to suddenly die out or our right. need for electricity is going to die out. It was the, it was, it was renewables supplanting natural gas uh, fire generation. So, yeah, I think it's going to be an ongoing issue. Um, and at some point we'll need to, you know, ex- if we're going to keep production growing, uh, we'll need to export more, and at some point, the entire world will be uh, somewhat saturated with natural gas. We'll have to solve that, but between now and then, uh, let's just hope for continued growth and demand. There yeah. you go. <laughs> I love demand. It makes my job a little easier. Demand is great. <laughs> demand is a wonderful thing. So as we are wrapping up, because I know I've picked your brains pretty thoroughly here today, but is there anything that's got y'all's attention individually? What is your kind of pulsing... Uh, you know, peripheral yeah. that is keeping your attention in terms of either the energy markets, what the average consumers should be aware of, um, just honestly anything. Yep. Hey, Rob, let me go first. So my number one. <laughs> me first. I see how it is. My number one is what should, uh, you know, general uh, people who are paying attention to commodity markets, what should you pay attention to? And it's pretty much every, every consumable. Um, so you can see in, and uh, you can see whether it's aluminum, copper, steel, oil, I think natural gas is going to come later. Um, you could just see this, uh, this, this buying frenzy going on worldwide, uh, recovery of the demand for these materials, and nobody is, is immune from it. The prices of lumber are going up to where uh, I think I saw some estimates that the average house uh, you know, costs $16,000 more to build now because lumber price of, prices are going up. Um, and this is uh, it's something that's going to affect everybody. It's a yeah. contributor to the pure definition of inflation, which is just general rising of prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, it should be concerning. So if you're in manufacturing, 
it's especially becoming a difficult, a difficult problem because manufacturers often are buying some commodities and sell, selling some commodities at the same time and sometimes carrying inventory and during a time when prices are highly volatile. And so I think like being able to measure your risk across an enterprise, all commodity risk is, is emerging as a, as a should be a huge focus in manufacturing. Can I hedge yeah. my bank account with all of this federal uh, wealth distribution? <laughs> we, can, no. we could probably come up with a plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A synthetic hedge or something. You said the magic word, inflation, and I was like, oh yeah, the thing I'm supposed to be worried about. <laughs> Rob, yeah. what's And we didn't problem? even talk about interest rates, but I imagine yeah, we right. have something to say about it. I, I think that's <laughs> going to be a, a part two to this, now that you mentioned, thanks for volunteering. Yeah. Rob, what is your pulse on industry? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll bring it back to, to something that I kind of touched on earlier and, and more specific to the, the energy and, and really the E&P space is just, um, you know, watching kind of some of the, the uh, folks have kind of been talking so much, uh, not necessarily the death of the, the growth of the industry, but just the pace of growth in the industry as far as kind of new entrants and what and what's going on and capital on the sideline and how long it's going to take for that those guys to start deploying capital and getting active again on that front and as i mentioned earlier you know we're starting to see an uptick in that um, which i do think is exciting I, I just you know some of these things have gotten stale and, and some of that's a byproduct of of uh, corporate consolidation and corporate m a um, you know, that there's stepchild assets, things that, you know, those guys want to concentrate more on one footprint and maybe they've got a few different basins where they've got assets and now's the time for them to start start shedding some of that off at asset level transactions and breathing some new life into some of those assets with new management teams coming in. And, you know, you've seen that with some some uh, big deal announcements here over the last couple of weeks. And, uh, um, you know, I'm excited about that, you know, partially just because I'm excited about what we can do for, for those guys and helping them mitigate those risks around uh, around that. We've done some pretty big uh, tranches of some hedges around a couple of big deals that were announced over the last couple of weeks. And um, so I'm just excited about the A&D markets loosening up finally. Yeah. So how do the new investors, the new teams, um, the existing teams who have made it through this uh I don't know, this turmoil, let's call it that, and are looking to sort of re-study their foundation. How do they get in touch with you guys? How can they start engaging with Aegis in order to protect themselves for our next fluctuation, <laughs> our next pivot? <laughs> our next our next pivot? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to talk with anybody that, that may have some needs out there. Um, you know, Aegis-hedging.com. You can feel free to, to go there, check out the... Uh, the site and there's some ways to get in touch with us there um, or, you know, find Matt, find myself. We're on LinkedIn. Um, you know, we're always happy to talk with anybody, even if it's just kind of talking through thoughts on the market and, and where we may be able to, to help. So uh, yeah, love to talk with anybody that may have some needs. And I will be sure to link y'all's LinkedIn profiles in the show notes below. So that if someone is interested in contacting you directly, either from something you've said that could totally incriminate you in this podcast episode, or otherwise. <laughs> but no, guys, thank no, you yeah. so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for having us back. It's, uh, it's always fun. And uh, 
you know, the world looks a lot different than when we talked last time. And I'm sure it will again the next time, hopefully the next time you have us back. I don't don't know, after this, uh, Catherine may not want to have us back. (laughs) I'm surprised with where things went after the last one that uh, that she's like, yeah, come back. It's like the world went to hell after you guys were in here. (laughs) It's always fun because you have some pretty good on what's happening and which way we're going. So I know everyone appreciates it. Matt, thank you so much for uh, your slides as always. It makes it so much easier to um, to follow, to understand, to digest for the average Joe to those who are deep, deep in industry. But otherwise, you guys, I cannot wait for uh, part two of House of Cards. So I hope you guys have a great rest of your day, but thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Our pleasure. Yeah.